The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So with that, let's go ahead and go to our Bibles now in Acts chapter 7. Those of you who haven't been with us, whether you're visiting or you've been out of pocket, we're going through the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, going all the way to chapter 28. And we just got out of 1 Corinthians, which was a very theological, didactic book, and Acts is very different. It's narrative, it's history, it's a lot of stories. And so maybe we'll go a little faster uh, through the preaching of it. But it is the history of the church, how the church started and how it got launched all the way up until about near the end of the Apostle Paul's life in the 60s is what it covers. And so there's much to learn, gain, and be blessed by for us today, 2,000 years later, as we study this book. God preserved this book for the church for a reason vitally important and already we are now in chapter 7 we will finish chapter 7 today lord willing we'll get to verse 60 Uh, this is part three of a sermons i've been doing on chapter 7 a very it's probably about the longest chapter of the book of acts acts chapter 7 60 verses most of it is stephen a believer early church christian highly respected in the first jerusalem church he is on trial and most of chapter 7 is Stephen's testimony that he was giving formally in a court of tri- uh, a courtroom as he was on trial. So that's what this is. This is Stephen talking. So we've already been to through the first two parts, a big chunk of what Stephen's testimony was. As he was answering the question before uh, the courtroom, the one leading uh, the interrogation, the high priest started out by asking in verse 1, Stephen, are these things so? Are these charges legitimate that have been brought against you? four charges that were brought against him, that he was a blasphemer, and he was a blasphemer of God, he was a blasphemer of the temple, he was a blasphemer of Moses, and he was a blasphemer of the law. Those are the formal charges that he is on trial for, and so he's responding to those charges. He wasn't a blasphemer at all. Faithful man of God, a faithful Jew, and now a born-again Christian Jewish man who has a right understanding of all of those, of God, the temple, the law and Moses. And now he goes on for an entire chapter, moved by the Holy Spirit of God to give his testimony before this courtroom. And the courtroom setting, just so you're aware, is the Supreme Court of Jerusalem at the time of the Jewish religion. In some formal building they had set aside for these kind of trials, very close, maybe even adjacent to the temple grounds. And they had a 71 judges who probably sat in some kind of a semicircle in no doubt probably cushy chairs as the judges and they had whoever was on trial standing in front of them in front of their semicircle responding to the charges so that's Stephen so in addition to the 71 who are in on this tribunal which would include the current high priest former high priests a whole bunch of influential Sadducees a handful of very influential Pharisees, including Gamaliel, the most esteemed, respected, and influential Pharisee of his day. Very possibly uh, Gamaliel's number one disciple, Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul, could very well be in this tribunal. Or he could be one of the witnesses who was also invited to this trial. We know that the witnesses were present who conjured up false accusations and charges against Stephen. They're in the courtroom. The temple guard, he's like uh, 
the chief of police who oversees the temple ground. He's there. And Stephen all alone by himself, standing, giving his testimony. So we've gone through the majority of his testimony at this point. We're going to pick up now the conclusion of his testimony. And so let's go ahead and look at that, and we'll cover chapter 7, uh, verses 44 to 60. I broke it up into three parts there. And I called this sermon today, Stephen the First Christian Martyr, Part 3. This is the conclusion of his testimony. In the title I put, Stephen the First Christian Martyr. Just a note about the word martyr. I noted this last week. In, in our day and age, the word martyr historically has been taken out of context, redefined, co-opted, hijacked, and infused with illegitimate connotations, nuances, and turned its very definition on its head. The, the word martyr actually comes from the Bible. The word martyr is distinctively a Christian and biblical word. You remember in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he talked to his apostles and he said, wait and be patient, wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will give you power and you will witness on my behalf, on my behalf, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will witness on my behalf when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The word Jesus used in Acts 1.8 for witness was martyr. That's the Greek word. And it meant witness. It meant Sometimes a formal witness in a courtroom, but it also meant a deliberate informal witness, maybe on the streets as you're talking to unbelievers. But that is the word martyr. That's where it comes from. It's interesting, ironic, and maybe even providential or, or prophetic that Jesus would say to his 11 apostles, you will be my martyrs. Because that's exactly what happened. 11 out of the 12 apostles were murdered for being Christians. They were murdered for preaching. That was their crime. John the apostle was a martyr because he was persecuted, tortured, imprisoned as an old man for being a Christian. So that's where the word martyr comes from. And then in history, uh, there was Justin Martyr, who was a pagan who became a Christian, born in 100 A.D., died in 165 A.D., and became a very zealous faithful spokesperson and witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ended up giving his life for it. He was murdered. He was beheaded when he was about 65 years of age for being a Christian. And his name throughout history now has become Justin Martyr. That's what a martyr is. So with Stephen, the church is now weeks, maybe months old, maybe just a couple of months old. So it's, it's brand new. The day of Pentecost just happened, was recent history. The church could just be weeks or even just months old. The church has exploded in terms of its growth. Stephen has risen to prominence and respect within the early church. He was a bold, courageous spokesperson for Christ. He began going into the Jewish synagogues all throughout Jerusalem. Uh, many of these were Greek-speaking synagogues, speaking to foreigners who were yet Jewish. And he began to have resistance in the synagogues as he preached and was interacting with those in the Jewish synagogues. And he offended people everywhere he went because he offended them because he just wanted to talk about Jesus. That offends people. That offends sinners. That offends unbelievers. Just talking about Jesus. That was his crime. That Jesus is Messiah. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the shadow of the temple. Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. Moses. 
They took offense at that. Jesus is the righteous one. He is the Messiah. He is anointed. He's the Savior. He's the only way. He speaks for Jehovah. He himself is Yahweh. And by doing that from synagogue to synagogue, he got himself in trouble. And so the, this resistance of unbelieving Jews there in Jerusalem at these synagogues got together, conjured up false witnesses, uh, talked to the leadership there in Jerusalem, and the leaders in Jerusalem, the high priests and the Sadducees, the very same ones who just had John and Peter arrested, the very same leaders who had all the apostles arrested and then beat them and then put a gag order saying, don't preach about Jesus anymore. This same leadership in Jerusalem, the very same leaders in Jerusalem who three months prior murdered Jesus Christ. It's the same men. And so they're given false testimony. They are infuriated. Their hatred towards the Christians has been percolating since the first time they arrested Peter and found out who he was. Oh, yeah, you were with that Jesus of, of Nazareth. So they arrested him twice and just thought they silenced them with a gag order and a threat and intimidate. That did not work. And now Stephen is going around being very proactive and deliberate, almost in your face about the Lord Jesus Christ. They've had it. This is it. We've got to put a stop to this. So they are going to take drastic actions of an extreme order. And that is the story before us now. So let's go ahead and look at it. Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Oh, one other thing I want to say about a martyr in terms of turning its death. Today, many times when we hear about martyr, we think of, uh, uh, I mentioned a Muslim um, who has a suicide vest on that's a bomb. He's called a suicide bomber. That's how they designate him in his religion. And then he, he will go into an innocent crowd, set off the bomb and blow up the building, kill hundreds of innocent people, and then he is called a martyr. That is not uh, what the Bible says. That is a distortion of the very meaning. That is a murderer, not a martyr. A martyr is someone who is innocent. A martyr is someone who is killed for their Christian faith because they testified of Jesus. And usually a martyr, a true martyr, is someone who did nothing wrong. Usually they're typified by peace and love for humanity. And that is true of Stephen. Incredibly godly man who dies as actually the first, technically the first Christian martyr. John the Baptist got his head cut off, but he was an Old Testament prophet. He, he came and testified before the church was born. So that makes Stephen, after the death of Christ, the first Christian martyr. And there have been a ceaseless line of ongoing Christian martyrs ever since Stephen got murdered. I reminded you a couple of times already that there are martyrs. Did you know that Christians have been slaughtered and beheaded and dismembered this week around the world? I don't know if you're reading the news, but it's happening at a, on, a, on a grand and global scale. It's amazing how much of the watching world does absolutely nothing. about. don't even want to talk about it and ignore it, but it is going on. That is the fate of Christianity because Jesus said, the world hates me, and he, he told his disciples, the world will hate you. And we've read those verses. Uh, before I get to Acts 7, we look at these verses 44 to 60. I want, I want to take you to Mark. You can either listen carefully or follow along with me. This is three months before the trial that we're looking at today, just maybe two to three months before. This is when Jesus was on trial, when he was condemned to death. He's on trial, Mark 14. And as we read this, the parallels to the situation with Stephen are absolutely uncanny. 
Jesus is on trial for being the Savior. He did nothing wrong. He's on trial before the Jews. He's on trial before the Sanhedrin. He's on trial before the high priest and the high priest's brothers. He's on trial before some Sadducees. He's on trial before some Pharisees. It's the same setting. He is on trial based on trumped-up accusations, which is exactly the same thing with Stephen. So let's read it and just look at the pair. So Mark 14, starting at verse 53, just before Jesus was executed, he was arrested. Verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest. This is the same high priest who just interrogated Stephen and asked him that question. Jesus was led away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. It's the same tribunal. Verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance. Verse 55, now the chief priest and the whole council or Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court of Jerusalem kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus, false testimony, in order to put him to death. That was their goal with Stephen. We need to put this guy to death. We need to shut him up and we need to shut down Christianity. And this is what they were trying to do with Jesus. So they are seasoned murderers. As they're dealing with Stephen, they have blood on their hands of an innocent man as they are dealing with Stephen. They've they've walked this road before. Seeking a way to put Jesus to death and they weren't finding a way because he was not guilty. Verse 56, for many were giving false testimony. Many were giving false testimony. That's how Stephen got arrested on false testimony against Jesus. But their testimony was not consistent. Couldn't be confirmed by the two or three witnesses saying the same thing. Verse 57, some stood up and began to give false testimony against Jesus saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And in three days, I will build another made without hands. Jesus never said that. They took what he said and twisted it. That's what liars do. 59, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. They are going to use this though. When Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, the first public words he ever said just about was destroy this temple. And by the way, he was standing near the temple when he said it. And he said it publicly during a Jewish holiday when there were thousands of people there. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Many thought he was talking about the physical temple and he was talking about his body, the temple of his body. Kill me and I will raise myself again in three days. They used that, twisted it, and turned it into a charge that they could execute him with. That's exactly what they do with Stephen. That was the charge. You're supporting Jesus the Nazarene who spoke against the temple... You are saying things about the temple, Stephen. You are blaspheming the temple. You deserve death. Back to Mark 14. Verse 59, not even this in this respect was the testimony consistent. Verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? This is the same high priest probably who said the exact same thing to Stephen three months later. Are these charges not true? Verse 61, uh, but he kept silent and did, did not answer. Jesus kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning Jesus and saying to him, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus said, I am. This time he spoke up, I am. I am the Messiah. Jesus, uh, Stephen will affirm that. Verse 62, And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Or you shall see, you, men, will see the Son of Man sitting in authority in heaven next to Yahweh Almighty God. That was the epitome of blasphemy. That enraged them when he said that. 
Stephen is going to say something almost identical to this about Jesus that's going to enrage them. See the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And in response to this, verse 63, the Supreme Court, the tribunal, the high priest, they began to tear and rip and shred their clothes. They were infuriated. They lost their senses. They were overcome with rage out of a heart of hatred and anger for Jesus and the truth. Tearing their clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. With that, let's go to Acts chapter 7. We're going to see something very similar that happens in the courtroom with Stephen. We'll start with point number one, and that's the first uh, verses 44 to 50. Point number one is the conclusion. And by conclusion, I mean Stephen is now going to wrap up his testimony that he's been giving us. He's going to bring it to a conclusion, a crescendo, a, a logical point. He's leading up to this very strategically. By the way, this isn't Stephen in human wisdom. This is Stephen being led by the Spirit of God who is prompting him what to say every step of the way. His point of emphasis in verse 44 to 50 is on the temple because they accused him. Uh, you were on trial today because you blaspheme the temple. You have a wrong view of the temple. You don't believe in the temple. Maybe you're even ignorant about the temple in the Old Testament. That was the charge. Now Stephen is going to actually respond and, and quote scripture from the Old Testament, the authority about the temple, the dwelling place of God. So he responds to the charge. And here's how he does it. Let's go ahead and look. What does Stephen have to say about the temple? He's going to say the right thing about the temple from an accurate biblical point of view. He's also going to expose their wrong view of what they think about the temple. And he's also going to expose their wrong view about what they think about God. These, the Sanhedrin, they are legalistic. They don't know God. They have much of the Old Testament memorized. They don't even know what it means. They have a distorted, twisted view of God and salvation. They are legalists. They're supposed masters of the Old Testament, but they're really not. They're just religionists. They have a twisted, distorted, perverted view of God and the temple. And so they understand the Sanhedrin. They believe that God literally is confined and localized like a genie in a bottle. That the transcendent, eternal, ever-present, almighty God of the universe is actually confined to a building. The temple. That's what the Jews believe. Who were, not believe, uh, who were not saved. So they had a very limited, myopic view of Almighty God. God lives in that building over there. God lived in a tent in the Old Testament. God is confined to this locale in the city of Jerusalem. And then he, Stephen has already blown that open, showing from the Old Testament, God is not confined to this location. God uh, spoke to his people with Abraham over in southern Mesopotamia in a pagan nation. God spoke to Abraham up in northern Mesopotamia in Ur, outside the confines of the promised land. God spoke to Joseph and, and moved through him and used him down in pagan Egypt, not in the promised land, outside the promised land. So he's already walked through that. God isn't confined to a building or, or a temple. God isn't present in a building. God is present with his people. God is, God is not present in a building. God is present with his people. That's true for us today. If you know Jesus Christ, he lives in you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely amazing. God is with us today. He's present in our midst collectively as a church. He is present here. He's present in every legitimate church 
that meets this day. That is the true God. And so now Stephen's going to give a corrective a little bit about, let's talk about this temple that you accuse me of blaspheming. How did we get this temple? Where did it come from? Verse 44, our fathers, Stephen continues saying, our father, I am a Jew. I am one of you in terms of our legacy in the Old Testament and our commitment to Yahweh and the authority of the scriptures. Our fathers, the Jews who come from the loins of Abraham, had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. So there was a tabernacle. There was a tent. That's where God would reside at times at his choosing. But the tabernacle moved from place to place. It wasn't fixed in one locale. But there was a tabernacle, true, just as God spoke to Moses and directed Moses to make the tabernacle according to the pattern which he had seen. God said, build it, build it in a certain way. And then at times God would come down and be inside of that tent or that tabernacle. But it was only temporary and it was not the fullness of almighty eternal God and its full presence there. It was a manifestation of his presence. They misunderstood that. Verse 45, and having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nation. So the tabernacle was portable like a tent when you go camping and it was to be pull up the stakes the proper way. The proper people are carrying it. And then they crossed into the promised land, into the days of Joshua, possessed the land, set up the tabernacle just as God designed. It moved around from place to place at times. In the days of Joshua, upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. And so that's about a 300-year time period where God was occasionally residing at times in this tent with his people until David came along. And then David, the first good king of Israel, the second king of Israel, whose heart was in love with God, yet he was a sinner. And at the end of his life, David wanted to build a permanent temple and beautiful Ephesus, edifice for God, whom he loved. And so he prayed, God, I, I want to build you a house. David had a palatial mansion, by the way. Maybe he felt guilty, but uh, he did request of God, can I build you a house? And God said, no, I'm going to let your son do that. It's a good request. I'm going to let Solomon do that. One of the reasons was, David, you got too much blood on your hands. David was a warrior. So uh, verse 46, David found favor in God's sight. And David asked God if he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Verse 47, but it was Solomon, David's son, who built a house or temple for God. And you can read about it in the Old Testament. And then they, have, they dedicate the temple. One of, the, one of my favorite prayers in the Bible is in 1 Kings, where after they build the temple and dedicate it, and Solomon lifts up his hands, he looks to the sky, and he says this amazing prayer as they dedicate the temple. Um, But it was Solomon who built the house. However, the Most High, even when they built the temple, where God would reside in the Most Holy of Holies at times, nevertheless, the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. You can't build anything big enough to accommodate all of the immensity of the infinite God. Impossible. And then Stephen quotes from the prophets about God as an infinite, omnipresent, immense, eternal God who can't be confined to a building or a temple. And God says, heaven is my throne. Heaven is where does God live? Not in a building. God lives in heaven. The earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord to accommodate me. He can't. Or what place is there for my repose? 
was it not my hand which made all these things? So that is the official conclusion of his testimony as he does this Old Testament survey highlighting the true God in his nature, that he's not a man and he's not confined to one place and that he loves people, not just Jews and not just religious Jews. He initiated salvation and relationships with some pagans like Abraham. He doesn't live in just a building. That building in the temple was actually to be a picture, a living metaphor and prophecy that Jesus would fulfill when he came of the true eternal temple. Jesus replaced the temple. He did. Jesus replaced the temple when he came. And Jesus also fulfilled the law of Moses. And so it's a new day. The unbelieving Jews, they didn't understand that. That's why they came up with these false accusations. So that is the conclusion of Stephen's powerful testimony. It's just amazing in terms of how he exposits and understands and wields from memory with the help of the Holy Spirit the truths of the Old Testament with the most significant Jewish Old Testament prophets and leaders that he's talking about, that he affirms, that he supports, that he's telling these people they spoke on behalf of God. I affirm them. I am a true Jew. I don't reject and undermine Moses. I affirm the ministry of Moses and Abraham and David and Solomon and Joshua and the patriarchs. So then he goes on after giving his testimony. And now, by the way, they have put him on trial to try to intimidate him, shame him and embarrass him. And eventually convict and condemn him. What's amazing is that God uses this soul man all by himself to turn the tables. And now Stephen actually has been putting them on trial. They don't even realize that they are the ones who have been on trial during his entire talk. They are the guilty. He's kind of like a lawyer speaking on behalf of God. God is the judge. They're the ones who are guilty. In the courtroom. And Stephen now is going to use the authority of God to render a verdict of guilty as charged. And he's going to let them know you are condemned by the highest court in existence, the court of almighty God. So that's point number two, the condemnation. But the condemnation, it's not them condemning Stephen. By the way, Stephen is not intimidated. He's not standing there shaking and nervous and mumbling and inarticulate. Defending himself and afraid, justifying his actions. He's actually in charge. He is calm. He is cool. He is collected. We saw at the very beginning, uh, at the end of chapter 6, that he has the face as of an angel. He has the face. Everyone who looked at him as he was standing there on trial, verse 15 of chapter 6 says, he had the face of an angel. What does that mean? It means a lot of different things. Angels are supernatural. They speak on behalf of God. They are never afraid in the Bible. They always cause fear in others who see them in the Bible. He is serene. He is collected. He is courageous. He is confident. He is under control. He's self-controlled all throughout. The end of his testimony here at the end of chapter 7, it says he is still filled with the Holy Spirit. He is, that means to be controlled by the Spirit. So he is totally controlled by the Spirit of God. He is filled with the Spirit. Those fruits of the Spirit just flow out of, they are exhibited in his life, in his temperament, his words, his attitude, his demeanor, his actions. What a sight to behold. And yet he's moments away from his last breath on earth. 
I'm always amazed when I read throughout church history of these, these martyrs where they're put at the, the stake, they're burned alive at the stake. True Christian, true godly people, males of you throughout church history. And you read about them and they in their they're dying and as they're burning, they're they're crying out to the Lord Jesus for prayer and comfort. They're crying out to Almighty God as they're about to see their God and Savior imminently. And, and many times they're actually crying to God and intercessing on behalf of the sinners who have condemned them. That is the consistent testimony of true Christians who are martyred throughout true history. That is the testimony of some of these true Christians who are being slaughtered, beheaded, mutilated, dismembered by ISIS right now that we see pictures of week after week. after. Week. There are pictures you can see on Internet where they make the Christian get down on their knees with a bag over their head or no bag. Tell them to renounce Christ, which they don't. And then they slice their throat or cut their head off. And the Christians, they're not rebelling. They're not cursing those who are killing them. They're, they're crying out for God's mercy. They're crying out to the Lord Jesus. They're crying out for forgiveness on behalf of their very murderers. So, I mean, how can that be? I think, man, I, I don't know. If, I don't think I could do that. Well, in my own strength, I couldn't do that. This is all the Holy Spirit of God. This is a supernatural protection, blessing, covering from Almighty God in the moment that it is needed. That's why at the beginning of his talk, it says Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. At the end of his talk, it says Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. God comforts his people. God is with his people. God is immediately there with his people at the point of death, especially at the point of persecution. That leads to death. How do I know that? Well, the Bible is explicit about that. I just want to read one verse out of First Peter, which is all about being a persecuted Christian. And Peter says this in First Peter 4. Beloved Christian, fellow Christian, fellow, you, you Christians who are being persecuted, they were. They were being persecuted for their faith. First Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be surprised that you're being persecuted. Don't be surprised that people hate you because you're a Christian, because you talk about Jesus. This fiery ordeal, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Christ suffered. You know him. You will suffer on his behalf. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. You'll be rewarded for your suffering and persecution. And then here's the promise in verse 4. This is amazing. If that's ever crossed your mind, God, I don't know if I could have, be serene and calm and gracious and forgiving and patient and trusting at the point of persecution of, of death. Well, here's the promise from God. First uh, Peter 414. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So there's a special blessing that comes at that time. What is it? Well, because the spirit of glory, that's the Holy Spirit. The spirit of of glory and the spirit of god rests on you and that's that was true Stephen. Stephen was enveloped in the very protection and power of the spirit of god they couldn't see it he is filled with the holy spirit they are filled with rage and god has this amazing special blessing of christians who are under duress in the moment who are about to die for his sake. 
so we can claim that promise, and Stephen did at this condemnation. So let's look at the condemnation starting at verse 51, going back to Acts chapter 7. He finishes his testimony, and then now the condemnation says, you men, you men, you Sanhedrin, you rulers, you the ones that are in charge, you who think you wield all the authority, you who think you represent true Judaism in the Old Testament, you men, you are stiff-necked. Whoa, that, he's quoting Moses. They said that he didn't believe in Moses. That's what Moses called the rebels in his day. And all the prophets used that phrase too when people didn't believe the word of God. You are stiff-necked. You won't bend. You're inflexible. And he says, and you're also uncircumcised, he doesn't leave it there, in heart and in your ears. Now, they were physically circumcised. That's on the outside. But he says, you are uncircumcised in heart. On the inside, internally, you are corrupt. Internally. And also, you don't heed and listen to the true word of God. That's why you were uncircumcised in your ears. This is the, the ultimate insult that he could give them, condemning them with the words of the prophets and Moses. Because that's where you got the terminology. And you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You know what this is? This is he is accusing them of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Blaspheme. There is no forgiveness for the true blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You are resisting the very Spirit of God. You are doing just as your fathers did. What fathers? Well, these evil, wicked Jewish people throughout history that always rejected God's prophets and spokespersons. Verse 52. Which one of the prophets, God's prophets, did your fathers, unbelieving, hard-hearted, stiff-necked Jews, which one of the prophets did they not persecute? So you go through all of Old Testament history and it's just prophet after prophet after prophet that was rejected by the people. The prophet of God, Jeremiah, had a whole ministry for 40 plus years of being rejected by the people, bringing God's word. The last Old Testament prophet was John the Baptist. They, he got his head cut off. The leaders of Israel all throughout Israel's history killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. So this is not unprecedented that the leadership of Jerusalem would reject the prophets and spokespersons of the Messiah. Stephen is a spokesperson of the Jesus, the Messiah. As a result, the leadership of Ju Judaism is rejecting him wholesale. The ones that are believing are the minority. It's always the remnant in the nation of Israel throughout history that believed God's message. So also it was true in Stephen's day. It was the remnant. They would believe, and this is the last warning, by the way, that God is giving the leadership in Israel. From this point on, because of the rejection, then God's going to turn to the Gentiles and he raises up uh, an apostle to the Gentiles who would become the apostle Paul. So they killed those who had previously the coming of the righteous one, that is Jesus. He is sinless, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You are a murderer. You murdered the Savior. Verse 53, you who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. The law from Moses had predicted the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and you have rejected your own Messiah. Guilty as charged. You can imagine how infuriated, irate, and enraged they became at this. You know, unbelievers, they get angry when you speak truth as a Christian. And you don't even have to talk about anything complex or controversial. Just talk about who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. He's the God man. He's the Savior. He's the only Savior. Jesus said, and I quote from John 14, 6, no one gets to the Father except through me. That makes people angry. There is no forgiveness apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes people angry. Jesus said, if you reject me, you will die in your sins. Jesus talked about and taught about hell eternally. That makes people angry. 
So it's just talking about the truth of the gospel is what enrages unbelieving, hard-hearted, stiff-necked sinners. And that was true of these Jews who should have known better. Well, let's go on to point number three, and that is the corruption. What I mean by that is the corruption of justice. The crooked court murders an innocent man. 54 to 60. Now, when they heard this, that Stephen pointing the finger at them, when they heard this, as you can imagine, they were cut to the quick. This is an emotional reaction. It was like somebody just punched them in the gut. That's what it means. I mean, while he's going on and on teaching, that was probably incredibly irritating. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's teaching authoritatively. He's speaking confidently. He is not intimidated. He's not cowering over. That probably incensed them to the nth degree as it was. But then when he says this, you are murderers of the Messiah. That cut them to the quick. And as a result, it says they began gnashing their teeth. This is a inexplicable kind of a, yet audible, but it comes from a visceral reaction. It's, it's not premeditated and thought about. This is a visceral, emotional, uncontrolled reaction from uncontrolled, unmitigated rage and hatred is what that means. This gnashing of teeth, gnashing of teeth. That's what it is. What you, it's, it's a mumbling, it's a guttural, visceral, inarticulate manifestation of utter hatred and anger. In symphony, they did this. Gnashing of teeth. This is the word, this is a very graphic and specific word. This is the word that Jesus uses in the Old Testament uses to describe what it's like for people who are consigned to eternal hell forever. Some unbelievers who mock Christianity in the Bible. Who call them commentators or even entertainers and comedians like Bill Maher. Who hates the Bible, Christianity and Christians and very overt about it. He makes a mockery of it. He makes a mockery of hell. He thinks it's funny. He thinks, oh, I want to go to hell. It's going to be one big party. I'll be with all my friends anyway. Party on. Losers in heaven who don't get to do anything what he thinks hell is that's sad that is not hell jesus created hell with the father and the holy spirit he knows what it is he's the king of hell he's in charge of hell he determines who goes there he determines the severity of their punishment while they are there he described it more than anyone else in scripture so he's the authoritative spokesperson on it and he said those who go to hell will be gnashing their teeth eternally what is gnashing of teeth that is someone who is full of hatred and primarily anger is the overriding emotion. People in hell, they are not happy. They have no joy. They are infuriated with anger to an uncontrolled degree like we can't even imagine. That's hell. And that, that anger that they have will never be appeased or abated. More than fire, when we think of hell, we should think of this, the gnashing of teeth and the utter uncontrolled anger and hatred toward there is no repentance there is no remorse there is no regret it is full-fledged hatred of god and his people for all eternity and it is manifest eternally with this gnashing of the teeth and that's what they were doing this was a harbinger of was what to come very shortly for these men who died in unbelief they would be consigned to hell forever 
in the contrast, look at Stephen. He's amazing. He is totally under control. They're controlled by hatred and anger. Stephen is controlled by the Holy Spirit. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently. So 54 through 60 speaks of Stephen's death at the end of his life being persecuted as a martyr and, and killed for his faith. And the beautiful highlight in this story, the testimony of Stephen, is that his death is full of Christ. It's full of Christ. And that's the way it is for the Christian. At the end of your life, your death will be full of Christ. Thoughts about Christ. Prayers to Christ. For all we know, Christ revealing himself to the saint who is about to die. The Psalms tell us that uh, God has no pleasure. He's uh, saddened even over the act of death and the culmination of sin in a saint's life. And he welcomes them into heaven. That's what Jesus did. And so we see that at the last breaths of Stephen. It's all about Christ. And the first thing about Christ, as he's on trial, is they're about to kill him. They're enraged with hatred. They're beginning to gnash their teeth and they're rumbling and unsettled and moving around and stirring up and ready to stand up. All the while, he is calm. The Spirit is upon him. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He looks up intently into heaven and he sees, he sees the glory of God. You know what that is? That is the full manifestation of all of God's attributes revealed usually in resplendent inimitable light the glory of god because god the father has no body so he looks up into heaven he just sees the glory of god and and that's what's surrounding him it's protecting him from the imminent death he's about to suffer he doesn't hear the gnashing of their teeth he just sees the glory of god how comforting is that and that's not all he sees as he's about to die he looks up and he sees the glory of god and jesus standing at the right hand of god that is awesome so the glory of god is god the father and the holy spirit ready to welcome him. Also, he literally sees Jesus in his glorified body as he's looking to heaven, and Jesus is standing up at the right hand of the Father, which is an amazing phrase because just about every other time in the Bible, when it refers to Jesus ascended into heaven, he is sitting down at the right hand of the Father. The book of Hebrews says he's sitting down because his work is complete. And this one time, Jesus is standing up. So the imagery is <laughs> Jesus was sitting down. And they began to gnash their teeth because they want to kill him. And whoop, Jesus is standing up. That is very comforting. for that, Steve, Jesus is standing up to welcome him. Jesus is standing up to be his advocate. Jesus is standing up to protect him, to minister imminently with him. I've sat, stood at the bedside of dying Christians with cancer. And it is not uncommon that just before their last breath, how they speak of a supernatural peace that's unexplainable and a very real intimacy they have with their Savior, the Lord Jesus, that I did not understand. At the time, but that is that's what Jesus does. Jesus welcomes and ministers to his own, especially at the point of death. And that's what he's doing for Stephen here. Uh, Jesus standing up. Um, and then in verse six, 56, this is it. And then Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. I see Jesus. You know, this is what Jesus said at his trial that enraged them when they tore their clothes and, said, and then they said, off with his head. They do the exact same thing. Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. Man, that's like uh, third graders 
who are pouting, oh, I don't want to hear. Literally, covering, grown men covering their ears. I do not want to hear the truth. I hate the truth. The truth makes me angry. So they literally, they're trying to run. And you can imagine them getting up in their long robes. And then now they're covering their ears. They are enraged. They're emotionally out of control. Running at Stephen now in a full fury. They can't even think straight. All they're thinking is death, death, death. All the while, Stephen, Stephen is thinking life, life, life. As he's about to be with his Savior. So they cried out with a loud voice, covering their ears, and they rushed. They rushed. They rushed at him with one impulse. I mean, it was just spontaneous. There was no plan. It was it's all spontaneous. Like all 71 just attacked Stephen. That, that has got to be supernaturally intended, and I think it was satanic. Moved by Satan and his demon. This is interesting. The word rushed, that is the same word used for the demon-possessed pigs that ran, rushed over the cliff when Jesus cast demons into them. This word rushed is also speaks of a demoniac, someone who is demon-possessed. These men didn't just have human anger. They were controlled by demons. That still goes on today, by the way. So they rushed at Stephen with one impulse. So much for the judicious trial. So much for procedure. I mean, they're all cautious and worried about procedure at the beginning of this trial that's why they were trying to boy we got to get some testimony we got to get some witness we got to do this the right way so we don't get accused falsely of truncating procedure so we got to find at least two or three witnesses who will be in sync in their charges against stephen they already admitted in the gospel of john this same jewish leadership they already admitted they did not have the authority to invoke capital punishment. That had to be done by the Roman authorities. Well, that is all out the window now. Forget procedure. They bypassed that in a fit of rage and hatred for Jesus, the gospel, Stephen, Christians, the Bible, truth. Rushed out in verse 58. When they had driven him out of the... So they go and they just grab him. Then they drag him. They dragged him into the courtroom, by the way, at the beginning of the chapter, it says... Or the end of chapter 6. They dragged him into the courtroom and now they are dragging him like this is mob rule. And they drag him all the way out of the city. And they began stoning him. From history, we know during that day, according to the mission and other sources, the way they would stone someone would be outside the city because they would be unclean. And also, they just dig a pit many feet deep, so deep, that some people actually died from the fall of going into it. If they didn't, they threw the person, pushed him into the pit, and then they just start dropping huge massive stones on him and literally crushed that person to death. And then they had a ready-made grave. Boom, he's buried. And this is what they're doing with Stephen. They take him out of the city, and they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid us They get to throw first. The ones who came with the Trump charges, they get to throw stones first. Oh, this is it. I get to do it. And it says they took off their robes. Why did they do that? So they could throw it harder and with more accuracy and be freed up. So they're taking off their robes and they're handing them to someone there who's taking their robes, who's collecting the robes of the witnesses. Who's that? The one standing there collecting the robes? That's Saul of Tarsus. That, he would become the Apostle Paul. 
The Apostle Paul is approving this process. It could very well be that Saul at that time was not only approving this, but was orchestrating and in charge. He could have been the catalyst of this whole thing, for all we know. That's why he said in 1 Timothy 1, he was the worst of all sinners ever in the history of planet Earth because of his involvement in the persecution and murder of innocent Christians. So they began stoning him. The witnesses laid aside their robes, and they laid at the feet of a young man, a young man named Saul, disciple of Gamaliel. They went on stoning Stephen. And what did he do? I said his death was all about Christ. Stephen is not cursing his murderers. Stephen is dying and he calls on the Lord. He, he prays that Lord Jesus receive my spirit. This is what Jesus did when he was dying. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen is being Christ-like in his death. Lord Jesus. Can you pray to Jesus? Well, Stephen does right here. Yes. We do pray to Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus is listening. He's our high priest. He is our advocate. He's our comforter. He's our elder brother. Jesus answered this prayer. Jesus received Stephen's spirit. Jesus received Stephen's spirit that very day. Jesus received Stephen's spirit uh, the moment Stephen breathed his last breath. Stephen died. He didn't go to purgatory for a gazillion indeterminate amount of time he didn't go into soul sleep till the next age he didn't go into limbo stephen breathed his last and he was immediately in the presence of the lord jesus christ absent from the body present from the lord that is clearly what is taught in the bible that's what jesus said to the thief on the cross this day this day i tell you this truly i tell you this day you will be with me today where in paradise that is heaven Where's heaven? Wherever Jesus is. Where's paradise? Wherever Jesus is. Jesus answered this prayer. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60. Then falling on his knees, nearing his last breath, he cries out with a loud voice so all can hear. And he says, Lord, another prayer. And again, he's Christ-like in his death. This is what Jesus did when he was on the cross. As those who were mocking him, Jesus was on the cross for hours, hours and hours and hours. And people were mocking him, taunting him, making fun of him, humiliating him. And Jesus prays for them and says, Father, do not hold this sin against them. They're ignorant. God, forgive them. Stephen does the same thing. Falling on his knees, he prays to God, the Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold, God, forgive them. God, save some of these wicked men. Saul of Tarsus is right there. God answered this prayer. Saul heard the gospel. He heard the truth about Jesus. The Spirit of God began to convict the heart and the mind of Saul of Tarsus, the Christian killer. And with time, Romans 1.16 became a reality in evil Saul's life. The power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Starting with me. That's what Paul meant when he wrote that in Romans. So God, Jesus answers these prayers. Jesus is going to welcome Stephen that very day into his presence in paradise. God is going to answer this prayer and save some of those who are standing there as his murderers. Including Saul, we're going to see later on in the book of Acts, it says that many 
priests, maybe we've already seen it, many priests came to believe. That's what the Sanhedrin was made up of, was a bunch of priests. Lord did not hold the sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. He died. He fell asleep. That picture is a metaphor that uh, he went into peace. He didn't go into torment. He went into peace. So this is beautiful uh, from the point of view of Stephen, even though he was killed and murdered and there was a lack of justice and corruption of justice. God does a beautiful thing and we can take heart from this true story. By the way, this opened the floodgates of um, persecution like we've never seen before there in Jerusalem. that just spread throughout the Roman world towards Christians. But here are some promises that we can take away from this passage that apply to us and all Christians. Uh, the first one is that God promises blessing and protection and the comfort of the Holy Spirit in the midst of persecution and even persecution to death. So Christians can take comfort in that. God will be there when you need him. When you need him the most, he'll be there in his fullness. Also a blessed comfort. Some of you have been by the bedside or, you know, holding beloved one in your arms when they've died and they were believers. And when a, a believer dies, you can be comforted knowing that Jesus is there. He is standing up, ready to welcome his beloved into heaven. That's what he says in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we could take comfort in that. And, and believers we know who are suffering or, and on the point of death, reminding them that the Lord Jesus is ready there, ready to receive them. That when they breathe their last, they'll be in the presence of the Lord Jesus in paradise. And then the last point we can take away from this is death in this life brings one of two immediate imminent results that are realities of eternal existence for the believer it is in heavenly bliss with almighty god the trinity the saints and the holy angels for all eternity where it's nothing but blessing from god and the fulfillment of all his promises and the curse of this world is put away where there's no more death and trial and sorrows and tears and pain that's all put away and there's perfection finally in eternal heaven. And if you believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior, he is the God-man, he died for sinners, you can't save yourself, you admit you're a sinner, you trust Jesus and his death to be the penalty for you, you repent of your sin, you acknowledge God is Savior, believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, and you understand that, that God saves you, and you are now a child of God in the family of God, and destined for eternity to be in heaven with him. That is the good news. And the other reality from this is if you reject all that, when you breathe your last, you're consigned to hell forever apart from God, apart from blessing, apart from the forgiveness of sin, in darkness, and yes, in the flames of fire. And paramount among that punishment is the gnashing of teeth that you will have for all eternity. That is not fiction. That is not mythology. That is reality from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. So in light of those two great destinies, I want to leave us all with this wonderful promise from the Lord Jesus. Well, it's wonderful if you embrace him as Savior, but I guess it's a warning to many, a promise to those who trust him. And it's from John chapter 3, that wonderful chapter. But here's what it says. Verse 8, it is a promise. It is now it starts in this life. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you have eternal life. And everything that goes with that. But the one who does not obey the Son, the one who does not believe the Son, the one who rejects Jesus 
and the gospel will not see eternal life. But instead, starting in this life, the wrath of God abides on that person. The wrath of God, the anger of God, the disapproval of God weighs down on you for rejecting Christ. And if you die in that state of unbelief, then you die in your sins forever. That is tragic. That is sad. So we plead with those maybe who don't know Jesus Christ to consider the gospel, the good news, and just to find rest. Finally, today is the day of salvation. Find your eternal rest. Find rest even now in this life. Find find true joy for the first time in your life as you believe in the gospel and get to know your maker, the creator, and judge personally as your heavenly father and savior. That is our heart's desire. And with that, let's go to prayer together. Father, we thank you for this morning. Just always a blessed gift to be with the saints, to be at the church with the body of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to have fellowship with fellow believers, to pray to you, to sing to you, worship you in in different ways. Be reminded of the power of your word, the truths of the gospel, its simplicity. Same time, our undeservingness, our sin. And thank you that you have an answer. It's in the gospel and Jesus, the blessed Savior. God, now I pray that you go before us with your Holy Spirit as you promised to do, reminding us to rest in you and also do the best that we can to live faithfully for you and also go before us the rest of this week. We love you. We commit this day to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.